0: Hello, everyone. Good afternoon or good morning or good evening, depending on where you are. My name is Andres Velasco. I am uh, the Dean of the School of Public Policy at the LSE. And I want to welcome all of you to this event jointly organized by the Institute for Global Affairs and the School of Public Policy at the London School of Economics. We are here today to discuss the economic policy response to the virus, to the COVID-19 crisis. And we're very lucky to be joined by three LSE faculty who've been doing plenty of research and policy work on this uh, response to the crisis. Uh, Here with us today are Adnan Khan, who is a professor of practice in the School of Public Policy, and Silvana Tenreiro and Ricardo Reis, who are both professors of economics at the um, LSE. There's much to talk about, um, and we have limited time. I will pass it on to our uh, experts, professors, and uh, panelists.
1: Um, Thank you very much. Um, So let me start with the the intro then. Um, As you know, COVID-19 and the public health interventions required to tackle it have presented enormous economic challenges. So I'll start by discussing some points about Uh, how policy should continue in the near term in developed economies, and then I'll move on to discuss the options in developing economies where the menu of choices might be be smaller. Starting with developed economies, given the speed with which COVID-19 spread and the tragic loss of life, countries have had to impose lockdowns with major consequences for economic activity. Unlike a typical recession, the large falls in GDP and employment we have seen and are experiencing right now have happened mostly by design. To help protect public health by reducing the spread of the virus and to gain time to reinforce the health infrastructure of some countries, making sure that there was sufficient capacity in the health system to address the pandemic. Looking ahead with the virus transmission having come down in most developed economies, but assuming no imminent vaccine on the horizon, the key question uh, addressed, raised as a homework to us is what policies need to be put in place as economies come uh, out of the, the lockdown gradually. Um, Now, the answer on which policy or mix of policies depends on at least three factors. First, how the falling activity is distributed across households and across sectors. Second, and this is particularly relevant for monetary policy going forward, the extent to which the falling activity is driven by demand versus supply. And third, how persistent the falling output proves to be. And of course these three factors are interrelated. For example, one downside scenario is that fear and caution about the health risks of the virus persistently weigh on demand in sectors with high social contact. This could lead to negative spillovers for income and employment even in sectors that are not directly affected by the virus or, or the lockdown measures. Similarly, weaker investment and lower productivity in some sectors, given social distancing requirements, could also weigh persistently on supply. Now for public policy, the more that some of these downside scenarios transpire, in principle, the longer that stimulus will need to be in place, whether in the form of aggregate demand or a more targeted demand or supply side policy but there will be major challenges in setting economic policy if the falling activity proves very persistent. Some companies that are not producing will need to take on more debt to continue to pay costs. And along with structural shifts in demand across sectors, for example, towards more online retailing, previously viable businesses and job matches will become less viable. Another challenge is that the crisis is likely to lead to an increasing wage inequality. Many jobs and incomes, of course, have been affected, but the effects have disproportionately hit low-wage sectors. This may reduce the power or effectiveness of looser aggregate monetary policy, for example, in supporting spending, given a reluctance or inability to take on more debt for low-wealth households. And here I'm assuming that higher wealth individuals maintain lower uh, marginal propensities to consume. Now, for the time being, fiscal support programs like the job retention scheme in this country are helping to mitigate these concerns. And in some senses are the ideal instrument for the crisis and for the early phase of the recovery, in my view. Now, given the substantial cost of these programs, the more persistent the negative effects on the economy, the more likely there are to be worries about that sustainability. For the moment, however, with very low long-term yields, this is probably not a pressing concern for developed economies. But it does increase the fragility of the fiscal position going forward. And I guess Ricardo will touch on this in in his remarks. Now, let me turn... uh, to developing economies where the policy response is is more challenging still. As well as the immediate impacts of COVID-19 on public health, the economic effects of the virus and the policies required to contain it will also have a wide array of negative consequences, making policy decisions more challenging. Many developing countries have been relatively successful so far at minimizing the prevalence of COVID-19. Many also have the inbuilt advantage of younger, lower risk populations. But for those that have been or will become badly affected, including some countries in Latin America, they also have some major disadvantages which may make health costs much larger than in in advanced economies. Under-resourced healthcare systems, for example, will be less able to cope than many in the developed world. Poverty and crowded living conditions will also increase virus spread as more of the population will have no choice but to go out and work, risking contagion to a greater number of people. And they also have bigger disadvantages on the economic side of the trade-off, which will mean the policy response put in place in advanced economies may not be suit- suitable or even feasible. Uh, first, lockdowns may be more costly, given that the structure of the economy will make remote working impossible for many workers. Second, many developing and emerging economies uh, will, will be less able to offer the type of fiscal support schemes put in place in advanced economy, which could help mitigate the job losses and business failures and act as a, as a significant boost to demand. Third, they are also vulnerable to what's happening in the rest of the world. Capital outflows could lead to unhelpful tightening in financial conditions. And this is even more likely for many commodity exporting countries, given the crashes in commodity exporting uh, prices in commodity prices. <clears throat> we'll also see large, larger drops in tourism and in remittances from advanced economies. Now, the policy response will need to balance the health risk and the economic losses and the response will need to be calibrated to the specific constraints faced by each country, infrastructure, demographics, policy space, and so on. It seems that a more targeted lockdown is in principle feasible, accompanied by appropriate uh, track and tracing, Uh, But in general, this this is not a case of one size fits all, and the optimal policy will be bound by constraints. Uh, Policymakers will, will need to make very tough calls. Given all these challenges, I think that there is a role for international institutions and rich countries to play, both in avoiding an increase in trade barriers and perhaps directly by providing aid. Since the virus itself can easily transmit back to advanced economies, international solutions that help developing countries tackle its effects will ultimately be in everyone's self-interest. I leave it here because my time is going, but um, I'll be happy to expand on any of these points later.
0: Thank you very much, um, Silvana. That was a, a very good account of um, what the outstanding issues are, both in rich and uh, in developing countries. Uh, and now we move to um, Adnan Khan, who I am sure will uh, provide more substance on some of these very special but also very challenging policy dilemmas being faced by, um, by developing countries. As, as Silvana was saying, the problem is um, deeper and more difficult from a medical point of view because um, the virus spreads more quickly in countries with weaker medical infrastructure or where people live in more crowded conditions. But there are also bigger challenges when it comes to crafting a policy response in countries which have both weaker institutions and fewer resources. So without further ado, let me turn it over to um, Adnan, please. The floor is yours.
2: So I'll take the perspective of developing countries and fragile states. And I'll talk a little about the current policy response and then a little bit about uh, going forward, economic recovery and long-term prospects. Uh, We all know this is an unprecedented crisis, but for developing countries, it's also risk endangering decades of progress in poverty reduction and economic growth in uh, possibly pushing millions and millions of people into poverty, uh, many of them who had been lifted out of poverty in recent decades, and others who are already there may further in, get entangled into the poverty trap. So this is serious. Uh, for fragile states, there is also a risk of this short-run crisis turning into a long-run economic stagnation that in turn generates a conflict and state failure and, in other senses, increases <laughs> state there a massive risk that it, we may require massive support long after the initial health crisis is over. But these outcomes to a large extent also depend on the policy measures put in place now to address the COVID shock. And let me talk about those. The challenge for low-income countries is unique. They are dealing with an unprecedented crisis with limited information. And no wonder there is a sense that many governments are flying blind, moving to extreme options that themselves feed into the crisis. And there is a need that we move beyond the binary cross of blanket lockdowns to no lockdown, as blanket lockdowns are costly, inefficient instruments with potentially huge unintended consequences. The issue is that with many already living On the edge of existence in developing countries, along with a range of pre existing health issues, the unintended consequences of lockdowns as a result of the measure, the policy response to the pandemic, may themselves be comparable to the pandemic's morbidity itself. As an example, health systems in Africa were significantly weaker prior to the crisis. There were less than 5,000. ICU beds across 43 countries in Africa, Uh, that translates into 5 beds per 1 million of population, compared to Europe where we have 4000 beds per per 1 million of population. So the trade-off for limited low-income countries is not just lives uh, versus livelihoods, but also lives versus lives. And working with a, with a group of uh, economists, epidemiologists, public health uh, guys, we argue the case for smart containment opportunity, uh, approaches with active learning. In other words, a data-responsive graded strategy that tailors policy response to people, places, and phases, and involves real-time testing and refining of policy responses. Uh, other aspects of policy response are also relevant here. So I'll talk about social protection and economic measures. Given the scale of the shock, low-income countries need a huge amount of social protection with very limited fiscal space. And the minimum that they need to do is not to make it worse. So analysis by my colleagues at the International Growth Center, they show that an eight-week blanket lockdown without an adequate social protection measures could result in 180 million people across sub-Saharan Africa no longer able to afford their usual food consumption. That's one-fifth of the population. And uh, according to World Bank and other estimates, many low-income countries are already taking measures, social protection measures. Even uh, more than 75% of uh, low-income countries and fragile countries are already taking measures to expand their existing social protection measures in some cases to establish, uh, introduce new programs. Uh, in countries which have uh, a pre-existing established social protection programs, in many countries in Latin America, some in Africa, some in South Asia, they are expanding those programs, uh, while other countries are uh, establishing new programs in Africa, Bangladesh being another example. And some countries are already taking innovative approaches to use new kinds of data, cell phone data, for instance, and other kinds of data to identify target and uh, also to provide social protection measures. Given the extent of the crisis, I think it's important to prioritize reduction of exclusion errors over reduction of um, inclusion errors. Uh, Similarly, policies are needed to ensure workers are not laid off so so that a short-term crisis doesn't become long-term economic stagnation. That means wage subsidies to formal firms and also finding innovative ways of bringing informal firms in. The formal firms that employ the most skilled and productive workers are important because the long-term consequences of workers being laid off at of the formal firms will be the most severe uh, in developing countries. So that's why it's important to, uh, to target formal firms. But also um, to the extent that formal firms are also hiring people from the informal sector, low wage workers, uh, this will also be a measure to to extend social protection programs to low wage workers through the formal firms uh, other ways of innovative ways of doing this and some countries are already doing it is uh, encouraging informal sector firms to get registered to be eligible for wage subsidies and other employment support programs in the short run with the long run benefit of also formalization of economy and increase in the Uh, with all of the benefits that formalization brings in terms of access to finance and increase in taxes and other measures. Uh, There is a potentially, call it like an incentive problem there of also like targeting these payments to formal sector firms. And uh, a number of people have also adopted uh, proposed approaches of structuring these payments in a way to address the perverse consequences. Maybe structuring these payments as loans with collaterals and equity, which are partially forgiven if uh, these are conditioned to verified uh, payrolls that these firms are actually paying to informal workers, to their own workers. And um, some countries uh, also are and should need to explore making payment directly to workers. Uh, I also wanted to talk about stabilization and and growth prospects, but uh, I think I'm out of time. I'll I'll make it in in the next situation. Mm
0: Thank you, Adnan, uh, for that uh, very complete uh, picture of uh, what uh, developing countries are facing. Um, we'll come back to the issue of what uh, what comes next in terms of stabilization and growth uh, in our next round. Now let me turn to uh, Ricardo Reis, who's a professor of economics, as we said at the outset at the LSE, who will go back uh, uh, and talk a little bit about, uh, or not a little bit, maybe a lot, about uh, the issues in advanced economies, particularly focusing on uh, on macroeconomic aspects. Ricardo, the floor is yours.
3: Great. Thank you very much, Andres, for inviting me to participate in this. It's a pleasure to be here. As you said, I'm going to focus on advanced economies because that's my expertise. Um, and I want to follow up a little bit where Silvana stopped, if you want, insofar as she focused really on the challenges in the near future, especially in this post-lockdown era that we hope we'll be getting to very soon. And so to complement what she said, I want to focus instead on what happens after that. So let's say in 12 months or in the next 12 months, that is when hopefully we'd be back to the health considerations no longer being a constraint. And again, I said 12 months, perhaps optimistically, maybe it will be longer, maybe it will be shorter, but when the health constraints and the virus are no longer, let's say, the binding constraint, but instead other constraints will be present as a result of this time that we've spent affected through the virus, and will lead policymakers to have to make some tough choices. That is, if you want, will be the state of the world once COVID is under control, and how will that state of the world, how will those state variables guide and limit policy at the end of this crisis? Now, right away, as I'm going to be there for telling you what the world is going to look like 12 months ago, or making some forecast of it, being a Sufficiently well-trained economist, I am very weary of making any forecasts at all, um, and so I'll right away hedge myself in terms of that, um, in terms in terms of forecast errors, by pointing to three points that have been made worse by the COVID-19 pandemic, that have been enhanced by it, but which in some ways had already been building up for quite a while. I might even say for a decade or perhaps even two. So while the crisis may well be a turning point, as with many turning points in history, one perhaps could have seen the curve long time coming before it actually sharply arrived. Let me therefore, given my uh, remaining six minutes or seven minutes, uh, point to three variables or three points. The first one, which Silvana already mentioned, the very high public debt. Now the numbers are truly astounding. Uh, not only is was that starting from the eighties and the nineties that built up to what were only what was only previously seen in war times, but then with the great financial crisis, the debt had done another big jump up, which had barely by now been paid for. It in many countries had not done so. Now with this large debt, immediately the question has to arise, which is how can you pay for it? What How will this large debt that the government of 2021 inherit, um, how will it constrain its options? Now, there's an easy answer to this, which one too often hears, which is, oh, well, we could just grow out of the debt. You don't need to do anything about it. Nothing that's painful. Growth will take care of it. But as much as this is technically correct, it is also, as with many technically correct things, completely useless. After all, when was income growth not a solution to an economic problem? Sure, if we got richer, that would solve, forget about the debt, getting richer would solve many more problems in my individual life, let alone in our nation's problem. And moreover, how much control does policy really have over it? Can we really say, well, we'll just grow faster since we now have a lot of debt? Of course not. Otherwise, we would have wanted to grow faster if we didn't have a lot of debt. So let me rule that out as an explanation, as opposed to, or as an option, let's say, as opposed to simply um, some um, um, wishful thinking. In practice, there are two options. The first one is to tax more than is spent. Sometimes that is called fiscal responsibility, running primary surpluses. mouths may call it instead austerity, an ugly word. The second option is to have interest rates on the debt be lower than the growth rate of the economy. And if one can't really raise the growth rate in a significant way, then one can at least try to lower those interest rates. Some would refer to that as maybe accommodative monetary policy or responsible debt management. But again, equally bad mouths, although coming from different directions, will call this financial repression. Which one will it be? I would say that this is going to be one of the big questions facing economic policymakers starting 12 months from now or even before. We will have elections where there will have different campaigns and different platforms. Uh, relying on different parts of this, so different mixes of how much should it be austerity, how much should it be repression or financial repression. Now, over the last ten years, though, and going back to my point that these curve had been had been already back in the horizon, um, interest rates had been already remarkably low all by themselves. Now, financial regulation may have been may have contributed to that. There may have been a little bit of financial repression insofar as after the global financial crisis, some of the regulatory measures may have compressed interest rates, although much of it seems to have come instead from somewhat natural causes having to do with the aging of the population as well as the fall on productivity. More on that to follow. For now, though, I would guess that, at least looking at the recent past, that there may indeed be the path that interest rates will stay low for, natural, for a mix of natural causes as well as policy, and that is how this state of the world, if you want the high debt, will be resolved. Now, having said that, this is not a cause for complacency. Relying on interest rates being low is a very dangerous path, as any country that's gone through a software debt crisis can easily tell you. For interest rates, even if fundamentals keep them low, can quickly jump up, being a market price that relies on the beliefs of speculators and investors. It is precisely by relying on low interest rates that countries have found themselves in sovereign debt crisis. And this is where advanced economies may well find themselves as well. Second state of the world for 12 months from now savings, in particular, the savings of households. Now, I was on a BBC radio show just a couple of weeks ago. I was talking about some of the macro consequences of this crisis. And the other guest was a personal financial consultant who was much more than me very persuasively and convincingly arguing that through these hard times people had really learned the value of having a nest of savings if another lockdown will come soon you better start building your nest egg now moreover if anything looking at the recent past people households families had been saving far too little now this other guest she was so persuasive that, I was just still on air at the BBC and thinking, oh God, where can I trim my household budget? Surely, I must also be saving more. But at the same time as my heart was fluttering, my head was kicking in through my training in macroeconomics, by which I mean that if we all do the same, if we all listen to this very wise personal financial consultant and all start saving the more, then that extra savings will fall. Will lead to a fall in aggregate demand, for more savings lead to less consumption that will lower GDP, cause output to fall, making us all poorer rather than richer, and inducing us to save even more, which indeed will further make us poorer. Now, the voices that me, your madman, was hearing were those of Keynes when he spoke of wise academics speaking to the minds of madmen. And this was his very famous paradox of thrift that explained the Great Recession. Looking right now, I see that as perhaps the big challenge for whether this recession becomes prolonged, and whether it becomes a Great Depression, the Paris of thrift. Every household will want to be saving soon. As all save together, we will have a contraction in output that may persist for a while. And Keynes himself had taught us what the answer to a situation is. That answer is to have the public dissave, the public invest and spend and run deficits to offset that increase in private savings. Having said that, and given my previous point, that may not be so easy. Why? Because of the large debt. And again, note that this was long time coming as well, following the Southeast Asia crisis of the late 90s. Some of the younger listeners may not remember, but there was a big crisis in many countries in Southeast Asia, and the result of that was during the 2000s, and one that still persists, was an increase in precautionary savings by countries that started betting on having very large reserves in order to fight any future, um, any future uh, attack on their currency or financial crisis. This got given the name of the savings glut, and it was all the rage in economic policy debates just 10 or 15 years ago. Well, those countries have not started saving, and as Abnan an, was mentioning, this is a crisis that is affecting the whole world in a way that has the potential to make the savings glut an even more global phenomenon, and even one that will be harder to fight third state of the world, productivity. With lots of savings, those savings will be chasing investments. Now, what we had seen, though, for the last 15, 20 years, and the UK had been a sad leader in that, was that there were no good projects, it seemed, for this, for these excess savings to find. We found a, there, was, there has been a great decline in productivity growth, a lack of good ideas, perhaps. Or generally why, we don't know, but there's been no lack of credit, liquidity, savings, and yet not enough investment and productivity to come with it. Why is this? Well, some, as I said, say the so-called techno pessimists said that perhaps it's because we did run out of ideas. Others pointed to disruptions in the financial sector with a mix of regulation, bad incentives, leading to the misallocation of that savings into bad ideas and leaving the good ideas unfinanced. And finally, others will have, no, have noted over the years that maybe the problems is that the rise of big tech has led to an increase in monopoly power, and monopolists have a big case, have a big argument for keeping their rents, in particular for buying uh, rising competitors as opposed to innovating in a way that will increase productivity. Moving forward, what, what has COVID done? Well, first, starting with my last point, when it comes to big tech and monopoly power, well, what this crisis has done already in the last couple of months and likely will do in the next few months, is raise the comparative advantage of those who have access to a great distribution network. Now, what we've seen from distribution networks, whether it's Amazon or even just a large range of supermarkets that ruled out most corner supermarkets over the last 20 years by relying on the superiority of the distribution network, which comes with very large economies of scale. If this will continue, if more of us will want to have their food delivered at home and their different goods delivered at home. Then one might safely predict that concentration the concentration that we observe in the, in the supermarket sector or in the bookshop sector will now extend to many, many, many other goods and even services that can be delivered at home by relying on the distribution network. So if monopoly power has been a problem, it may continue to be a problem. Likewise, with misallocation of capital, one hears so many calls for interference of governments, for changing the world. That one fears that that will cause misallocation. And finally, the financial sector is still hobbling through from holding on to past debts, as heavy regulations that lead us to further as well. So again, we have that all of the sector, all of the factors that contribute to the to the low productivity of the recent past, have, if anything, been enhanced by COVID. So to stop here and already being three minutes behind schedule uh, relative to my allocation, what are the challenges that I think will be there in 12 months or more? What are the challenges that will constrain policy for, I think, the many years to come that will dominate economic policy debates? One, high public debt. Two, in a scenario where household savings may rise and lead to a paradox of thrift pushing for a depression. And three, the the lack of productive uses of that capital either because it is being misallocated or because good ideas are not being generated by a lack of creativity or, more importantly, due to excessive market power. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Ricardo. Um, We will come back to some of those hard but uh, fascinating issues of monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, I want to um, share with everyone the good news that we have nearly 500 people uh, joining us in this uh, discussion today, the um, what we're going to do in the next few minutes is I'm going to go back to each one of the panelists for one or two questions, one round with each one of them, and then we will go to the audience for a Q and A um, period of time. So let me go back to um, to Silvana, who provided us a broad panorama. She spoke both of uh, advanced countries and uh, and emerging markets. And I want to ask uh, one uh, quick question on uh, on each on advanced countries, Silvana, um, one sees central banks being uh, very active um, and uh, engaging not only in the uh, unconventional monetary policies that uh, the Federal Reserve or the Bank of England or the ECB followed uh, ten years ago during the great financial crisis, but doing more. Uh, both quantitatively and qualitatively. So one question that often arises uh, from skeptics or, or, or bad mouths, uh, Ricardo might have said, is um, are central banks uh, breaking that um, very important rule of thumb that says that uh, you can intervene in markets, but you should not provide monetary financing to the fiscal authority? Um, Uh, Should we be worried about that? Is that what central banks are doing? Uh, Or maybe they're not. I'd be very curious to know your uh, views on that. And then if I may just uh, touch on one other issue that has bearing on emerging markets. Uh, You mentioned that many of them will be running current account deficits. Many of them will be having very large financing needs externally. Is there enough financing out there for emerging markets? Is the international community doing enough? Or are there other things that should be happening to make sure that uh, developing countries and sort of middle-class emerging markets have access to the necessary dollars or pounds or euros the necessary hard currency to finance both government activities and also their external gaps. Uh, otherwise, some of the good things they should be doing they may not be able to pay for. So let me turn back to you Silvana with the two questions and then we will go back uh, later on to Adnan and also to uh, Ricardo. Over to you Silvana.
1: Yeah, thank you Andres. Um, On the first question uh, of monetary financing, um, central banks like the Bank of England have a very clear monetary remit with an inflation target and operational independence to implement it. Now, the main tools that have been put in place um, even recently quantitatively have been QE and interest rate policies, including guidance about future rates. These policies transmit to the economy in fairly similar ways. For all policies, a key part of the transmission is to influence the cost of financing to all borrowers. We normally think about private sector borrowers, but monetary policy will, of course, influence the cost of financing to governments too. So actions by central banks that lower longer-term interest rates, such as QE or forward guidance, um, also lower interest rates. Um, for I mean, also lower borrowing costs for, for the government. Um, so there's nothing new on that, other than the scale of current government expenditures. More QE and lower interest rates were needed to help support the economy and meet our remit. And this is in a context in which inflation is set to fall well below its target. So monetary policy is doing its job by you know, helping all borrowers, including the government that's you know, uh, helping to stimulate a very depressed demand. Um, But to be clear, that doesn't imply fiscal dominance. Monetary policy actions are framed within the remit. If fiscal policy, say, was being loosened, for example, in a context where the economy was growing strongly and price pressures were increasing, monetary policy would be tightening, that's for sure. and, and that, of course, would increase the cost of financing even when government would issue more debt. So this, this is part of our remit. We need to support the economy as a way to meet our targets. So answering your question, to the extent that monetary policy loosening lowers the financing cost to all borrowers, including the government, if that's called monetary financing, that's definitely what we've, we are doing, we've always been doing. Uh, but what guides the policy decision and its calibration is inflation targeting framework. And that's the very important part uh, to stress on the emerging um, economies and developing economies. So the, your question is, uh, is there enough um, financing or is um, and clearly not these economies are struggling Uh, and and that's why i mentioned in my remarks that i think there is an important role for rich countries and international institutions to play um, supporting uh developing economies and emerging economies with uh, financing and and possibly direct aid as well uh there's a big um Externalities in, in, in the interests of everyone that developing countries solve the health problem as well as advanced economies because the virus can come back very easily and and hence this this is a global problem that um, that in, international institutions and and all countries have have to work out together.
0: Thank you, Silvana. I think that last point is, is very, very important. Um, when we talk about um, the rich countries, the advanced countries playing a role in providing financing to middle-income or developing countries, this is not simply an appeal to altruism or generosity. There are at least two cross-effects. One you just mentioned, which is um, the the virus uh, moves across borders and attacks all people, regardless of passport. And therefore nobody's safe in the world unless uh, we're all safe. And this implies, of course, making sure that developing countries have the resources to tackle the virus, both from a medical and an economic point of view. There's also another issue, which is purely economic. Once upon a time, the emerging markets used to be a tiny part of global demand. Today, if you include China, uh, emerging markets are, depending exactly on how you measure it, between 40 and 50 percent of the global economy. And therefore, if uh, that um, half of the economy is performing very poorly, overall demand will be low and growth prospects for rich countries, including the U.S. and the U.K., will be dimmed. So there are plenty of reasons here, I think, to worry about financing and worry about what the international community is doing or maybe is maybe failing to do. And I'm sure we will return to that in the time uh, we have. Let me go back to Adnan now. Um, Adnan, um, there are two things that I'd like you to, uh, to touch upon. One is the one you mentioned that at, at the very end, which is countries in the developing world have been focused uh, on the uh, on the very urgent uh, emergency disaster relief aspect of responding to to the pandemic. Um, but um, there are always longer term issues, and in particular, there's a real risk that. Uh, the damage to um, labor market relationships, the damage to uh, productivity will be such that in many countries you could have, a, a, as you said, a return to poverty. Uh, and in addition, uh, a period of very low growth. Um, some parts of the world have responded to a previous crises. You know, I'm from Latin America. I think of the 1980s, I'm sure Silvana does too, as the long decade that was also a lost decade. That is to say, uh, a crisis that came from, uh, from debt issues ended up hindering growth over, uh, a, a whole decade. So I'd, I'd really appreciate that. And then if you could say a little bit more about that. And I cannot ask also, uh, um, I cannot resist the temptation to ask you maybe just to elaborate a little bit on, um, on these smart containment policies. Um, you know, lots of countries out there are trying to do this, but it's proving very hard. Uh, there are countries that have begun to do sort of a gradual opening up. And we don't know because the data is, is very scarce, but uh, some people are saying, well, the minute you open up, you get new um, waves of contagion. We've seen a bit of that in Korea. We've seen a bit of that in parts of China. We've seen it in countries like Peru and Chile and Latin America. Um, so if you had a health minister or, or an economy minister in front of you, maybe we have one in the call at and what are the two or three things that we really know that, uh, that we can do uh, to implement this very this very uh, appealing idea of smart containment, containment, or if you want, smart opening up. Over to you, Adnan.
2: Thank you, great question. So, first of all, economic recovery depends on policy measures put in place now in terms of labor market policies, policies towards funds, and uh, social protection. There's a, definitely a role for the international community uh, to protect, support, fragile states, low-income countries, Precisely for the reason that both of you mentioned, pandemic and fragility anywhere is a threat to the rest of the world, everywhere. And it's much better and also cheaper to put protective railings on the top of a cliff than to have ambulances at the bottom of the of the cliff to deal with a car crash. Uh, so it's in collective interest to avoid a lost decade. Um, and if I'm honest, like uh, much of the measures so far, taken uh, happening and, and the response by the developed countries is uh, uh, doesn't seem adequate to the nature of the scale of the crisis so far, but this is, these are early days. But this response by international countries is by itself not enough. Um, if we have to stabilize these countries, uh, domestic response is, is hugely important. To give you an example from Pakistan, uh, Pakistan's economy crashed 13 times during the last 60 years. So every few years of my life, there was a new crisis. And uh, it, every time it required an IMF bailout. And unless the underlying structural issues and the dysfunctionalities are addressed, any new bailout is unlikely to end all future bailouts. Uh, so, so countries themselves have to have to do a lot. But ultimately, there's no pathway without sustained job-creating economic growth. So Africa's population is set to double by 2050, with its urban population set to triple, with 18 million new jobs to be created per year uh, for this growing population. And there's no way to do it without sustained economic growth, uh, job-creating economic growth. That's the only way to lift people out of poverty. And the drivers of growth are also mostly, product, uh, mostly domestic. So many of those barriers and drivers are, are removing distortions and frictions in the market, uh, the elite bias, boosting domestic productivity, the myopic short-termism that we see in many countries. Um, to give another example from Pakistan, so in the past three decades, like uh, girls have out both out enrolled and outscored boys by a big margin in terms of uh, secondary school and other school enrollment. Uh, both in terms of, like, more than half of the secondary school enrollment is girls, and in terms of the grades and others they achieve, uh, they far outscore the boys. But when you look into the female labor force participation, Pakistan is one of the lowest, uh, even compared to the region. So there are clearly issues of uh, labor market practices, there are, are like, patriarchal issues, there are issues of social norm, and that by itself, like, could be a huge growth dividend. That doesn't require any external intervention. Similarly, like, rent-seeking elites, uh, urban land practices being determined by in the interest of the elite. Uh, you know, the urban land standards in in Africa are still mostly following the practices of uh, uh, colonial era, like uh, laws, which are completely out of sync with the current reality there. So, I think all of those issues will also have political ramifications. Um, unless we create jobs for these number of people in Africa and other places, there will be g- generations of people whose expectations or whose aspirations are dashed. that's bound to have political implications. Unless many of these countries also put the interest of the collective above above the interest of the privileged few, uh, the economic growth will also not happen, and there will also be a political resentment. Coming to your question of the smart containment approaches, so it's partly an approach to go beyond a use they call it like uh, the standard framework that we have in economics and social sciences of decision making under uncertainty so acting with the information that you have today but also acting with a view to gain more information actively and using that information to refine your actions but also to judge uh, the call it the policy response or the responsiveness of, uh, of the outcomes with respect to your your actions and the way it is done is, uh, like is um, policy responses need to be data responsive and not based on the whims of, uh, of anyone, or not based on uh, obviously like copying practices from outside. That doesn't work. And also they need to be graded and graded. By graded, I mean like uh, the whole country doesn't need to move from, from the extreme stages Coronal solutions of either having a no lockdown to having a blank lockdown. There are many stages in between. Uh, uh, many developed countries are currently moving toward those stages of having different uh, color coded, um, um, graded responses. But the other approach is a graded response so having those responses, not necessarily at the level of the entire country, but also at the, but at the level of the smallest possible geographical and administrative unit where you could implement it. So, grading the country. So, in case of uh, like, um, I know in Chile they're having this policy of uh, dynamic containment. is also moving these containment policies as in response to the phase of the crisis or the phase of the pandemic. Uh, we are working with different governments in Pakistan uh, to implement it. And the units that we are working on are the smallest possible units, census blocks, which are roughly like 200 to 300 households. So, policies. That are targeted towards that level that are based on data. So, there's a lot of like census data, there's a lot of health data. So, we're doing a lot of testing in collaboration with authorities and a lot of like uh, pre existing health data, cell phone data, all kinds of data uh, that could be used both to, to tailor your responses but also to, to measure, uh, evaluate the responsiveness, the impact of your responses and tailor your response moving forward. Uh, colleagues are doing it in places, several places in India, uh, in discussions with several governments in Africa, who are also interested in similar approaches. So I'm not rooting for a particular approach, but like a more of principles that could be adopted uh, that protect both lives from the pandemic, but lives, uh, non-COVID related uh, lives, but also protect livelihoods by having a data responsive, uh, continuously evolving, uh, graded and graded approach that varies by th- people, places, and phases. Let me stop you. Thank you,
0: Adnan. Um, I think that's a fascinating and promising approach. Of course, time is short. Governments everywhere are struggling to get these things done uh, in real time. But uh, as you point out, uh, we have to save lives and we have to save livelihoods. Uh, they're both uh, worthwhile uh, objective, socially speaking. And uh, I think these um, smart containment policies offer the promise uh, of, a, of a reasonable midpoint between the two. Let me go back to uh, Ricardo now um, and to those thorny issues of monetary and fiscal policy. Um, and I want to ask you, Ricardo, uh, one macro question and one institutional question, but they're both uh, related. Uh, as I listened to you on the macro, um, I was struck by the following uh, thought. On the one hand, you worry that um, simply borrowing a lot and then hoping interest rates will remain low is a tricky thing. Uh, and if you come from an emerging market like I do, you know, that's uh, probably something you don't want to do at home because it's dangerous. But then you told us two other things which lead me to be a little bit less worried. You said there'll be lots of savings. People will be uh, worried that uh, there will be another crisis around the corner, and therefore they will uh, ask um, their family members to be prudent, to be thrifty, to be careful. And then you added that that you know because of growing monopoly power and for a number of other reasons, maybe productivity growth will be low. As a result, investment demand will be low. Well, if savings is high and investment demand is low, the real interest rate will be low. And therefore... It is not simply that we're praying to the gods to keep the interest rate low. Maybe it will be low. Uh, and as a result, the strategy of, of borrowing a lot, if you're the UK or the US or many countries in, in, in the developed world, maybe that strategy is not that reckless, maybe not that crazy after all. So I, I'd be interested in your thoughts in sort of pulling the three strands together of what you said earlier. Then on to institutions. Um, we're asking central banks to do a lot. and um, Long before this crisis, there was already a bit of backlash around the world. Uh, people were claiming that central bankers had too much power, that uh, they were not accountable enough, and that um, you know populists everywhere uh, were claiming that a central bank autonomy had to be limited or, in some cases, altogether uh, eliminated. Now we see central banks being asked to do more things. Central banks, uh, according to some, should be of, you know, dealing with inequality, dealing with um, long-term unemployment, dealing with climate change. Uh, So the question to you, Ricardo, is um, do we have institutions that are sufficiently strong uh, or are we in for a period uh, in which central bank independence may be weakened and eventually could become uh, something out of the past, not something in our future? Over to you.
3: Great. So on the first question, it was just I was very happy by that question because your your summary of what I try to say was even was much better than the way I said it, and I was exactly pointing to that, meaning I was not trying to raise three points that imply that we have an insurmountable challenge ahead of us, but rather the three points as three vertices of a triangle of the trade offs that policymakers will face and of the constraints that policy will have to deal with so precisely as we put it, on the one hand, we will have that keeping interest rates low on the debt will be important to pay for this debt. But on the other hand, we'll be looking at these low interest rates as a result of the low productivity and the high savings, which we'll be trying to fight in order to raise productivity, growth, and especially also to fight what I call the potential Great Depression. And so as you're going to be working on trying to stimulate the economy on trying to do the, say, public investment and the public deficits, you'll be at the same time realize that in doing so, you'll be raising interest rates that put your debt position at arms. Likewise, when we talk about more direct financial repression to control the public debt, and starting just with the public debt just because of where you started, but we can start in any direction here. Well, if I do a series of financial repression on the financial sector in order to keep interest rates low by essentially taxing the holds of the debt, then I have the problem that that will likely lead to, or at least that's what past experience shows, to more misallocation of capital which in turn is going to um, uh, lead, if anything, to a further decline in productivity growth. And in turn, of course, if we have some of the measures to try and uh, fight the productivity, or, or fight, sorry, to try to enhance productivity, try to lead productivity growth, such as, as you pointed, the, uh, the changes to regulation, antitrust, monopoly power, those are precisely some of the things that will affect, of course, the savings. In this case, from the perspective of corporate savings for monopolists have a tendency to sit on their corporate savings in order to rate others, as well as um, in terms of their ability to invest in new technologies. And so it's precisely, as you put it, the interaction of those three that leads me to frame these three states, not as three things pushing us all to be worried, but rather as understanding that these are the trade-offs that will be faced. And indeed, if you look at, say, other extreme events, say, so let's focus on the end of, say, World War II, to give an example we had precisely these conditions happening. We had fears of our productivity growth that came from the dismantling of the war economy and to what extent we could restructure our economy to productive productive size. We had the fears of the powers of thrift and we had, again, very large debts. And looking back, for instance, at the history of this country and the United Kingdom, the 1940s were pretty tough. The 1950s much less so, but the public debt did go somewhat out of control. And yet it was time of high growth throughout the 50s and some of the 60s. In the United States, likewise, you saw – and or forget the United States. Let's talk about Europe, where the 50s and 60s were times of great boom. That is where the trade-offs, these three trade-offs, were handled in some ways that turned out to work out, partly because of luck, partly because of policy mix. What I was trying to enhance was not – I was not trying in any way to be gloomy. I think that was just my way of speaking out of professional defect of being an economist. I always sound gloomy. I was saying that these are just the three states of the world that will constrain us, the triangle of possibilities that I think will drive many of those choices. And then very briefly on your second question, very briefly because in many ways in your answer, I think you already raised, many, in your question, you raised many of the issues that, that, I would, that I would just repeat back at you. I think, of course, the fourth state is in making these choices, we need to think about what extent fiscal and monetary policy will make the right choices insofar as the ones that maximize um, social welfare, and the ones that lead to a better outcome to all of us. And here, when it comes to central banks and picking those in particular, remember that just 20-so years ago, across the advanced economies, we gave central banks a remit of inflation targeting, as Silvana um, described 40 minutes ago, and it is, it is remarkable to note how successful central banks have been in it. In the United Kingdom, the last 20 years have seen the best in the sense of lowest Average inflation combined with low volatility of inflation in 400 years of data that we have for prices in the UK. Uh, It's remarkable that we now discuss 0.4% of inflation below target. as this great tragedy that we have to do something about. When measurement error alone in inflation often exceeds 1%. Um, That has been a remarkable time. And yet, if one looks, and as you pointed, this last crisis is putting a stretch on it. The questions on monetary financing that you asked that have legitimately to be asked uh, and, and Silvan answered them very well, but will just become even more pressing as the debt increases. But I would say more generally than that, the fact that or this started already with the global financial crisis where central banks became seen as the saviors of the world economy in fighting financial, financial collapse. Now again, we saw Jerome Powell just yesterday on NBC Live on 60 Minutes saying, being again hel- heralded as the great savior of economic policy of, in the United States. And this continues to happen with the central banks You know, the ones that are going to keep everything going, even when other authorities are not doing so well. I think these are utterly unrealistic expectations. Central banks have a very limited set of tools, can do very little with them. Because if they were so successful in inflation, they gain a little bit of room to, on top of keeping inflation on target, be able to need to help in crises like the last one like last month, as well as the one 10 years ago. But that's a very limited scope. And yet, among the public, there are great, great expectations, which central banks are surely to disappoint in near term.
0: Thank you, uh, Ricardo. That, uh, I think, was a wonderful and rich and varied set of uh, points and perspectives. Um, I'm sure um, I'm tempted to keep speaking. And I'm sure that panelists are tempted to keep adding points. But uh, we're going to turn to the audience. Uh, We have exactly half an hour to go, so um, uh, quite a bit of time for the audience to have its say. But before I turn to those questions, let me just share um, a fascinating bit of news. As we carry on this conversation, um, there are people uh, watching and uh, tuning in from these are the countries we know about. There may be others. Nigeria, Indonesia, Hong Kong, Colombia, Spain, Portugal, India, and Chad. Um, so when we see that, when we like to say uh, in London that the LSC has global reach, that is not simply an expression of desire. It seems to have uh, some grounding in reality. Uh, thank you, everyone who's joined in. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your questions. So let me now turn to um, some of the questions that our audience has. Um, put forward, we're going to treat them in batches of three. And the first batch uh, is mostly about uh, fiscal and monetary policy and probably mostly applicable to advanced countries. Um, uh, so let me just uh, read some of them. Luca Righi the professor of administrative law at the University of Pisa says, to what extent is helicopter money the right policy? to deal with this crisis? And if we apply it, what kinds of risks does it entail? Anna Maria Pilati, who is a former student at the LSE, says, uh, how real is the risk of crowding out now that we have all this government debt out there? And will it be inflationary or will it be deflationary? And last but not least, a question uh, aimed directly at Silvana, which Silvana may or may not be in a position to tackle. Um, this is a nameless question, uh, and it goes like this Is the Bank of England actively discussing negative interest rates in the United Kingdom? Um, so there you have it, all three questions. I don't know if Ricardo or Silvana want to uh, begin and have a go at, at those.
1: Well, I can start with the last one, which is very pointed. Uh, The MPC has not ruled out any policy tool. And as always, we will be evaluating the pros and cons of different policy actions and their effectiveness in in different phases of the crisis and its recovery. My personal view, which comes from the reading of the European uh, experiences, is that negative rates um, have have had a positive um, um, effect in the sense of having a a fairly powerful transmission um, to real activity. Um, that's in the context of European countries, but there are some considerations that are more specific to the UK and will need to be waked up, including the effect on some financial institutions, implementation, communication, and so on. Uh, But for now, Everything is on the table for us. We, we are considered many, as always, uh, many different policy tools and, and the uh, toolkit of uh, central banks uh, has always been uh, evolving. And, and we've seen many examples since the crisis and in the context of, of the COVID crisis.
0: Thank you, Silvana. Um, as I'm sure the audience is aware, this is a fascinating and much debated question with a very eminent economist like uh, Ken Rogoff at Harvard arguing that you know, the time has come for negative interest rates.
3: So stay tuned. Ricardo, you want to have a go at some of the others? Yes, let me answer the other two. So starting with the crowding out question. Um, well, very much in my uh, initial intervention, I was in, indeed suggesting that the crowding out was limited, meaning that it's precisely the Keynesian paradox of thrift. Those the conditions that lead to that paradox are precisely the conditions that say that extra government spending will have limited crowding out and will be particularly effective so on the one hand i was already um i already said that i think some of the conditions for why the crowding out may be small going forward and as a result to encourage their government investment and others as a way to fight the recession over the next 12 months i think are there at the same time um it is important to note that uh, a great limitation to government investment policies of that type to deficit financing is precisely the existence of a very large stock of debt. I mean, I still remember in 2009 and nine and eight when many countries around the European periphery precisely went through very large deficit spending uh, programs, as was appropriate, precisely because crowding out was very small during a financial crisis, 2008 and nine, And that really came back to bite them back in 2010, insofar as uh, when we had speculative attacks on some of the on the dead in Greece or in Portugal or even in uh, Ireland, Italy, and Spain. Um, so I think that the crowning out in the sense of the usual channel is weak and will be weak in the near future, but this issue of the large debt, and as I say, in the relying on low interest rates to keep that large debt, essentially opens up what economists might call the speculative equilibrium range on top of the usual, even if in the usual one, the crowding out is limited. Mm-hmm. On the helicopter money, helicopter money is a fascinating concept, but I've learned over the years, and I've discussed it many, many times, that different people mean different things with it. Um, we all agree that helicopter money is the central bank, prints something, money, liabilities of the central bank, and it gives it to people. Through maybe not through a helicopter, but through some other fancy way. Um, let me answer with three related three questions. First, when you say helicopter money, Professor Regling, do you mean that the new money pays interest or doesn't pay interest that the central bank issues? Second, is it backed by assets? That is, does the central bank buy stuff with it and therefore has assets against it, or does it just give it away? literally throw it from the helicopter, or do you fly your helicopter to somewhere and buy something with the money you printed, or in particular, a financial asset? And three, are the recipients of your helicopter narrow, banks alone, that you would say lend to, or broad, the whole population? Now, you can build a whole cube of different answers to these three questions. But let me just tell you that if the new money pays interest, as has happened in the case of all of the increase in the new money printed by the Bank of England, by DCB or by the Fed in the last two months, then in principle, that is not inflationary. In Principle, it does not lead per se to any inflation per se, because central bank money that pays interest is not that different from government bonds that pay interest, mm-hmm. and borrowing is something that you do without necessarily causing inflation right away. Second, on the second question, is it backed by assets or not? If it is backed by assets, there's also no sense in which the central bank is engaging in any risky activity, There's no sense in which the central bank is crowding out risk, per se, or that we may have to fear a central bank insolvency and a devaluation of the currency on account of that. Um, Those assets are there. And again, if you look at the Bank of England, the ECB, and the Fed, they've been buying government bonds that's backed by assets. Those assets should pay. When those assets pay, the the central bank will then pay the interest on its liabilities, and it should all be not, let's say, to uh, affect things all that much in terms of insolvency or others. On the other hand, if it's not backed by assets, then we are in a world where central banks engaging in de facto fiscal policy, in the sense of, um, um, in the sense of essentially giving resources to people in, the, in that it prints without requiring anything back. And then we raise issues of whether the central bank should be in that fiscal policy. Given the remit of any advanced central banks, it shouldn't. But you can certainly argue that it should be doing it, even if that's not what they're allowed to do. And finally, thirdly, on the recipients be narrow. As of now, so the banks have essentially opted for always oh, the narrow choice. You lend to a few banks or financial institutions and then let the equilibrium play out as it spreads the economy. You do not lend directly to people. Um, I think on that one, two notes. First, I think in some ways, central bank digital currency, if it existed and allowing the central bank to lend to people might have been very useful a month ago when governments had so much trouble, especially in the United States, in making money reach people. At the same time, outside of extreme cases and when you want to do that lump sum, opening that door, I think, opens an enormous door for manipulation of the central bank, and in particular for the central bank to engage in redistributions for which it has no, and I repeat, no with big N-O, democratic uh, accountability and legitimacy to do so. And so I would say no in that case that the recipients should continue to be narrowed.
0: Thank you, Ricardo. Uh, fascinating subject. Uh, you said you've discussed it several times. I'm sure we will all discuss it many times again. Uh, I'm tempted to, get to, to remain on this point, but let's move on. Um, we have a few questions on the international dimensions uh, of COVID and, in particular, the, uh, the impact uh, on developing countries. And let me read out two of those, and maybe Adnan will, will want to tackle them. We have a question from a former MP, Keith Raffin, who says, it may well be the case that it is in the self-interest of developed economies to help developing economies, both in terms of uh, economic aid and public health. However, there is no international leadership to make this happen. And in this sense, claims the question, this is very different from what happened 10 years ago when uh, during the financial crisis, the G20, and I would add the UK within the, the G20 played a, a key leadership role. So that's one question uh, uh, on the international dimensions. Uh, there was a related question also about um, Sub-Saharan Africa uh, and it runs, it, it does not come with a name attached to it. Um, and it, it runs more or less like this. Many uh, portions or parts of Sub-Saharan Africa are devastated by previous pandemics including, of course, the AIDS pandemic. So what have we learned from those pandemics that we can put to use today? And should greater aid from the rest of the world materialize, how do we make sure that the aid will, in fact, reach the people it has to reach? How do we make sure that it will be effective in sub-Saharan Africa? So maybe, Adnan, you want to kick off on those? And uh, if Silvana or Ricardo would like to add anything on these subjects, please do.
2: OK, thanks. Sir. So on the first question, I couldn't agree more that it is in the self-interest of developed countries to be reaching out and supporting developing countries as instability, fragility, and pandemics and diseases, they respect no borders. And um, if there is disease anywhere in the world, it affects everyone. And... uh, I also agree that the scale of the policy response so far is not commensurate with the magnitude of the problem that we are seeing. And maybe these are early days, uh, but I do hear voices, uh, especially from the UK, so uh, people like Gordon Brown, many others. Uh, we also had a wonderful uh, LSE seminar, where, which also supported some of these. And uh, G20 and many other fora also have, have expressed um, and reiterated support for developing countries. So far, it hasn't materialized into huge and big packages, uh, partly because I think many of the countries uh, it's a it's a truly global shock, and every country is um, perhaps rightly so in the immediate circumstance um, uh, consumed with domestic policy response. However, it's about time that uh, the international community also thinks of the policy response for for uh, for developing countries. Having said that, that alone is not sufficient. So I, I have also work on this um, um, LSE Commission, LSE Oxford Commission on State Fragility and Development. One of the key lessons there was. Um, it's not external actors that can shape the destiny of a country. Uh, countries have to lift themselves out of poverty. There's no case of a country having developed based on the visions of outside actors, even though even if benign. And the task for the international community is to support domestic actors when they are taking those actions. And that also links to the second question. Yes, there are lessons to be learned from the devastation that AIDS and Ebola also. Um, reeked in, in most of Africa. And partly that lesson is the importance of uh, global cooperation, but also in a, with a view of t- respecting domestic autonomy and sovereignty and not bypassing. A lot of the aid that came to fragile countries in sub-Saharan Africa was came with strings attached. And that led to substitution effects, um, um, the domestic measures being taken to, to, in some case, countervail and substitute for, for international aid. And many times measures being taken, uh, which were a direct response to the conditionalities and to the preferences of developed countries and there being no ownership for those. Uh, I can give you a couple of examples. South Sudan in the pre-Civil War, uh, was asked by many donors to think of carbon reduction measures. And at that point in time, South Sudan obviously had many other priorities, uh, not that carbon reduction is any less worthwhile task. Many other places um, were forced to, to, to abide by the conditionality that the preferences are the pet projects of the donors. Um, if the response now to this crisis has to be anything different, Yes, there has to be, uh, call it a commensurate response for developed countries, but also done in a manner which builds, boosts, and leverages domestic capacity and doesn't substitute, doesn't undermine that. Um, um, We have seen examples in Africa in places where it was done in that manner. Rwanda, Ethiopia, and there are a few other examples also. Um, Sierra Leone and Liberia also are great examples where the Ebola response was... um, supported by the international community, but also uh, in a fundamental sense, domestically led. And lessons learned from there are still being applied and still being very poor, very fragile states, um, because of that previous experience, which was devastating, but also led to uh, boosting domestic capacity um, and to some degree of resilience, which may not be sufficient, but is still helping them with the current crisis. And the lesson for the rest of Africa and other parts of the world will also be, uh, don't just think short term, don't impose your own preferences and pet projects on developing countries, build system, respect ownership, respect sovereignty, and uh, uh, build domestic capacity, help build domestic capacity and don't bypass. Another thing that was done in Africa and many other uh, fragile states, Afghanistan, another example, was routing of these these new aid, and especially health aid, but also all kinds of other aid, uh, by bypassing the state through parallel project, parallel state machinery uh, created by, by NGOs and international consulting organizations. And as soon as the money went dry there was hardly any capacity left in those in those countries. That's a lesson worth mentioning today when we are thinking of the response uh, to this crisis in developing countries. Let me stop.
1: Yeah, just briefly to add, uh, I think this crisis took everyone by surprise. And I think it's fair to say that there was a lack of preparation. And so far... Um, many countries have been consumed by yeah, their the domestic demands and uh, solving the crisis at home. But I think as time progresses, there will be a, you know, a, a crystallization of the need to um, really help and, and collaborate with, with developing countries and, and with, with all countries. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gone through many. Epidemics and pandemics in, in the past century alone, we've seen the 1918 uh, flu with its aftershocks. That was order of magnitude more fatal and comparable in terms of the economic impact. Um, different countries have been affected by, to different degrees by a sequence of polio epidemics, cholera, uh, HIV, SARS, MERS, Ebola. There's, there's a lot of learning, and I think, you know, in some sense, many advanced economies have been very lucky not to be hit by many of these shocks. Uh, but there will be a lot of learning, and I think um, a better understanding that, that these, these are global um, problems that require global cooperation. So, I'm, on that, I'm more optimistic.
0: Thank you, Silvana. Uh, We've got plenty of questions coming in, and I'm going to uh, read three of them. And uh, I will leave it up to the uh, panelists to choose who wishes to tackle each one of them. Uh, First question is from Murphy Walsh, who is an LSE alumnus who's lucky enough to be living in sunny San Diego, California, um, in which he says, Current policies are being incorrectly labeled as stimulus packages, when instead they're just stabilization policies. Uh, now, once uh, the crisis is over, I presume by that he means uh, the sort of the, the, the virus aspect of the crisis is over, we will be needing stimulus packages in addition to the current stabilization uh, policies. How do we think about those? So that's one question. Um, Another question which I find fascinating is from Mihai Tereji, who's an MPA at UCL here in London. He says, "Do you think government should, and do they have the moral authority to, attach conditionality to the packages um, of lending and support they are offering to businesses?" And what he adds, you know, limitations like uh, not allowing companies to do buybacks, to pay dividends or demanding companies that they limit their carbon footprints, is it valid? Is it uh, morally justified to attach such uh, conditionality on these loans? Great question. I have my own answer, but I will defer to the panelists on that. Uh, and last but not least, um, in this batch, we will do one more batch afterwards. Maximilian Munro, who's a student in Glasgow, uh, asks... What policies can be implemented to make sure that um, the temporary job losses do not become permanent job losses? And uh, let me add uh, that um, earlier today I was reading a a paper produced in the U.S. uh, by some colleagues there who estimate that about 40 or 42% of these temporary job losses in the U.S., may in fact become permanent, which is a very, very large number. I mean, we'd be talking about millions of people who would be permanently unemployed in the US. So, uh, first of all, do we believe these kinds of numbers? And secondly, what what can we do about it? Any takers for any of these three questions?
1: I'll start with the first. I think all stimulus policies, or what we call stimulus policies, are stabilisation policies. I mean, we we never try to overheat the economy or take it take it above um, what we think is the trend or the underlying potential of the economy. So it's it is a stabilisation. So that's mo- mostly a semantic point. It is a stabilisation policy, but obviously it is stimulative because we're so behind or so below that uh, we need to to push it up. Um, On Maximilian, I think uh, many of the policies put in place, um, for example, job retention um, policies, the the overarching uh, goal has been to, to try to keep those uh, job matches or, uh, you know, preserve those job, uh, job relations uh, and, and avoid them becoming you know, prevent the job losses to become permanent. So that, that's, that's been the, the goal behind uh, fiscal policies and to some extent also many of, of, of the central bank policies in supplying credit to reach the transition to uh, until we, we are out of, of the um, dangerous stage of the virus and the lockdown and so on. So, I, th- I view all of, of these policies uh, aiming at, at the same, really. Will 40% of the job losses become permanent? That's, see, to me, the first reaction is that seems like a very, very um, high number, but obviously, um, we'll have to see. We need to Understand that so far, most of the falling GDP and unemployment has been uh, by design. Um, it was necessary and, and used. Um, um, a, it it was planned in some sense. Um, What we will be learning as this lockdown is lifted is how activity in sectors that are not restricted by lockdowns evolve. And so there will be a fast learning, I think, in the the next few weeks and months. Um, I think it's too early to... um, put numbers for now, and that's the reason why we at the Bank of England have not put together a, a forecast. We are discussing scenarios and the uncertainty is is, is too big to, uh, uh, to start putting precise numbers.
0: Thank you, Silvana. Anyone else would like to add uh, your thoughts, Adnan or Ricardo, on any of those
3: three questions? I will, Yes. Yeah. So let me add a couple of things on the first one and then I'll leave it to Adnan. Uh, on the first couple. So first on the design and stimulus package, I think a key ingredient there is going to be a classic supply versus demand. That is what's going to be the big bottleneck? What's going to be the, the thing missing uh, six or 12 months from now uh, from the economy where the government can help? I pointed, a, I pointed to the role of potentially too much, too much savings, too little demand, and as a result, the need for just uh, aggregate demand policies on the size of the government. And so I've already made the point for that. But let me make the point now for, instead, more supply policies. Mm -hmm. If it turns out that, indeed, this crisis is such that it leads to a readjustment of economic activity, with some sectors booming and some sectors disappearing, maybe the whole hospitality industry will change. We will start, like, going on holidays to different places than before, insofar as places that involve less crowds. Uh, Perhaps we will start having more deliveries of food as opposed to eating in a particular restaurant. Perhaps we'll have changes in terms of how people are more aware of just anything that involves crowds versus others. All those require some readjustment of the economy. In that readjustment, combined with the short-run adjustment of some firms failing and others not, that I can see very easily many supply bottlenecks emerging. And there I would say more programs are much more focused on the supply side in terms of trying to overcome some of those. And these can be either from... uh, more or less regulations, with some loans for private investments, plans of rehabilitation, with some professional training, and a series of other policies, Marshall Plan-like, if you want, of that kind in terms of building a new infrastructure. So I think that's going to be the big question. I really, for now, I would not either try to venture a forecast of which will be more important or not, or which will be the more likely. But I think that mix of supply versus demand is going to be, I think, the real question of, of, of where the support comes. And then briefly on the question of, uh, or on the on the question of, is it forty percent permanent job losses? I that seems to me like an exaggeration. I mean, I think trying to make these temporary, insofar as the lockdown was limited in time, it's hard for me to see how many of the workers just can't go back to their old jobs. After all, I mean, in continental Europe, in some places in continental Europe we lock down the economy for the month of August and everyone comes back on September 1st and things are okay. (laughs) This is much worse than that and much more extreme, Mm -hmm. but let's also not see in this a complete change in the economic order and a complete forgetting of where jobs and workers work. I think it's, so it seems to me just a little bit extreme Mm -hmm. to assume that. And then finally, very, very briefly on the morality of it. I think that's a fascinating question. I'm not an ethicist. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a philosopher. Um, or political science to discuss these. But I actually think that's really a very well-pointed question. And I'll tell you my answer in two parts. On the one hand, I might say, well, yes, if you're providing assistance to someone, it seems immoral to, at that point, attach conditions to that assistance. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you would say, well, but we already have designed so many policies of taxing carbon emissions and others mm-hmm. um, in normal times To now turn those taxes into simply relative subsidies seems to be just the other side of the mirror. And I see in this no discontinuity and nothing immoral about doing the same thing. If I will tax you if you emit carbon, then now I will subsidize you more if you don't emit carbon. There's nothing but the mirror image of that. And so I'm not sure I can draw such a sharp line between that morality. And so I find that a fascinating question. And yeah, I'll stop here. Thank you. Uh, we're running
0: short of time, but I'd like to offer uh, Adnan uh, the possibility of um, of adding to these, uh, to these responses, and maybe we will do one more round very quickly because we've got plenty of questions.
2: Adnan? Okay, thanks. Uh, the only thing I'll add is in terms of the question of job losses, so this is a very serious issue for developing countries, partly for the reason that much of the economy is in the informal sector and the formal sector response, the government response in terms of... Uh, these subsidies and employment support only covers the formal sector, mm-hmm. and partly this is also an issue uh, that has arisen because as a direct consequence of the policy measures undertaken by the authorities. Uh, and as we speak, there are millions and millions of migrant workers in India who are migrating, traveling. Um, from the cities which were subjected to lockdown and them losing their jobs and traveling back to their hometowns so that i follow it every day the like it's a human tragedy uh, in the making with millions and millions of people with pregnant women walking 900 miles uh, going back to their places of origin their villages uh, call it the unposter child for unintended consequences of policy action. How do you deal with that? Um, the, partly through like, uh, social protection measures uh, that directly target these people because targeting them through formal sector firms will not be enough. Partly area based policies and partly maybe skill uh, skill upskilling and other measures to transition to help their transition back to work. But none of those is easy. <laughs> Thank
0: you, Adnan, for that very timely and very important reminder. Uh, the issue of permanent job losses uh, is a big issue everywhere, but it may be particularly sharp and acute in developing countries, and that's something we should be thinking about. One thought on the issue of whether government should attach conditions for these loans, uh, and it's not a moral thought, it's a very practical thought, If a government is giving a business money uh, on very favorable terms, it is presumably because the business cannot get the money elsewhere. The business is liquidity constrained in the the language of economists. So if that business turns around and pays a big dividend or pays uh, executives a bonus or uses the money to buy back stock, well, that means that the company was not liquidity constrained to begin with. So the loan was not justified. So from that very practical point of view, I think it makes sense to attach conditions. Uh, And parenthetically, it's also the only way to make it politically palatable. So if businesses want the money, they better take uh, the conditions. Uh, I've been told that we can run over five minutes, so we're going to do that, but only five. I'm going to read three more questions very quickly. Um, I will uh, ask panelists to provide very quick answers, and then we will be done for the afternoon. So the first question is from Julia Ferrani, who's a health economist at the Women, Peace, and uh, Society program here at the LSE. And the question is, how do you suggest that economic policy take into account the different needs across genders and ages in both um, medium income and low income developing countries? From Edel Baisalov, who is the ambassador of Kyrgyzstan uh, to the United Kingdom, He asks, will we see any lasting changes in IMF policies or are we going to get the same austerity policies that the IMF is always imposed on developing countries? And from Emily Wolf, who's a PhD student at Leiden University, uh, the question is, uh, advanced economists are using uh, support measures which do not uh, distinguish across sectors. Should they be? Is this an opportunity to restructure our economies? So three questions and uh, four minutes, maybe a minute, a minute and a quarter each. Who'd like to start?
2: Let me do so. Let me take the first question on uh, Julia Ferrari's question on the impact on gender and elderly. Uh, so this is not just a developing country concern, but also developed countries. What we saw in the U- UK and other developing, uh, developed countries uh, was again an illustration of the unintended consequences of uh, policy responses and the need to take, uh, call it like um, complementary policy responses to address for those unintended consequences. So one, the consequences of the lockdown being increase in domestic abuse, uh, mostly women and, and children. And that led to obviously provision of uh, helplines and other measures uh, similar things, unfortunately, are not happening in most developing countries where uh, both the possibility of these abuse is much bigger and there, there are also reporting biases there that prevent these things from coming out. In terms of the elderly, again, like uh, uh, both of these underscore the need for tailored policy responses that incorporate the heterogeneity of uh, impact or uh, on different sections of the population. Elderly, we know from data, um, the data that I'm also seeing from, from my set of countries that I'm working in, also shows high rates of infection, morb- morbidity and mortality for the elderly. And the need to take undertake different measures to protect them uh, in the labor market and through provision of health and other measures. And also to, to not only in the market, but also within household measures to protect the elderly. And public policy measures everywhere, both in developed and developing countries, need to undertake different policies to catering for the needs and vulnerabilities of different sections of population.
0: Thank you very much, Adnan.
1: So quickly on women, another aspect that is is also relevant uh, for women is that they have had to... uh, take a, a bigger share of responsibility at home in many countries where you know still social norms uh, um, imply that women have to uh, take more responsibility with children or the elderly and and, and so that's a heavy a heavier um, um, load for women so I think it's very important that employers understand this uneven distribution of of burdens and and take that into account in promotion cases and and, and sort of take the bigger perspective if, if there is anything missing in the near term uh, in terms of, um, um, you know, quality of, of the job. Um, on the sectoral policies, I think there will be a lot of scope for sectoral policies in, in, in the sense of targeted demand or supply policies to um, uh, help in the adjustment in the sectoral adjustment that will come after the, this uh, this crisis. And uh, I you know I think some um, tools like again the job retention uh, scheme, which is an aggregate tool, but it actually serves the sectors that are more affected by by um, by the crisis and hence need the full furlough in so you can have some aggregate measures, but uh, by the very impact of the um, of of uh, the crisis tend to be. Um, more active or, or, or more important in, in certain sectors. So I think there, there will be a lot more uh, going forward and, and many more targeted policies.
3: Oops. Very briefly, to conclude then on the IMF question, I think, I think the view and the question of the IMF is a little bit uncharitable. I think the IMF comes in and tries to help depending on what the problem that the country faces. And very frequently, the reason why the IMF is portrayed as such of a bad guy is because it comes in and ends up doing something that uh, was either inevitable or needed, but which the, but which local politicians did not want to take responsibility for. Um, and Now, looking forward, um, I think this is a different shock from the ones before, and I think the institution of the IMF has actually shown over the past that it is able to intellectually adjust and realize that the recipes for this one are not the same as in the past. Having said that, and this is where, closing the circle and going back to your question, um, I noted that a big public debt is going to be an, is, is an issue, is a constraint for the near future. that because that. I know that speculative attacks on the debt are a future, and that is the province of the IMF. That is what it was created to deal with in many parts. And so I expect the IMF to be very active, and in solving those, um, while taking into account the peculiarities of the COVID condition of the COVID uh, crisis and what it led to it is the fact that we still, without large changes in international financial order, which have not been done, the IMF by itself could not, does not have all that much discretion in terms of the ability of the policy it can, it can engage. Thank
0: you very, very much, Silvana, Adnan, Ricardo. Uh, thank you, uh, everybody who uh, made this possible. Each one of these events has many uh, professionals working behind the scenes to make it all come together. And of course, thank you very, very much to all the people who join us from around the world. Uh, I think we've made some progress. Uh, Many fascinating viewpoints were put on the table. I am left with many things that uh, I wish we could cover, but we're out of time. Uh, Please do join us again in another one of these uh, LSE School of Public Policy events on the COVID crisis and its ramifications. Thank you very, very much, everyone. Good afternoon.